All right, welcome back to the Big Texas Podcast presented by Texas Young Republicans. I am your host, Jordan Overturf, doing my best to shelter in place, weather the storm, flatten the curve, all of those things. Um, I hope that you are doing well, that your toilet paper stockpiles are, uh, are full and that you and your family are safe at this time. We know it's it's such a tough time. Everyone is doing everything that they can. We hope everyone is doing everything that they can. Uh, but we know that this this really is a tough time. Whether you are uh, you know your job was affected by this, or you know you're a, you have a healthcare worker in your family who is spending long hours out there helping with this response. Uh, everyone is doing their time on this deal, and it, it really is a, a community, a statewide, a countrywide, a global effort at this point. Uh, but we can only do our parts in our own communities. So that's why uh, I'm thankful for those who are able to, to shelter in place, to do all those things. We are thankful to our, our local elected officials, county, state federal, everyone who is, is doing their part to either get legislation passed, uh, get these executive orders out, you know, uh, put people into action on this effort. Uh, you know, obviously we have a little bit more clear guidance from the president of April 30th being the new, uh, extended di- uh, guideline for social distancing, uh, you know, the efforts to flatten the curve. Uh, but we're just going to continue, uh, to take all this in as it comes our way. Uh, we will get through this. We will get past it. Uh, and my guest today is one of the reasons why that's going to be possible. Uh, Dr. Tom Oliverson is a state representative uh, for Harris County, the northern part of Harris County. Uh, He actually works in Montgomery County. Uh, We talk about his experience as an anesthesiologist, what he is seeing himself uh, as a healthcare professional, uh, what he thinks of the response from Governor Abbott and all those folks. And what uh, what we could see down the road as we look at the legislative response to all this stuff. Uh, quick heads up. I am doing these uh, over the phone. I have not figured out how to turn off call waiting. Uh, so there is a little bit of an interruption in the middle of the interview, but uh, it's just a couple quick beeps. I will do my effort to Google and find out how to stop that from happening on my iPhone. But uh, I had a great time talking to Dr. Oliverson. I really appreciate him taking the time. So ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Dr. Tom Oliverson. Just take us through uh, what type of doctor you are and what your uh, medical background and experience is. Sure. Thanks, Jordan. So uh, my name is Tom Oliverson, and uh, before I ever ran for office, uh, I became an anesthesiologist. So I am a board-certified anesthesiologist practiced here in Texas, uh, in Harris County and South Montgomery County, primarily as a woodland. I have been a board-certified anesthesiologist since uh, 2005, been practicing anesthesia starting as a resident since 2000. Uh, All anesthesiologists, by virtue of their training, are all experts in critical care. Uh, We are the folks that I often tell people when they say, well, what do you do? I say, well, 
I'm kind of like the pilot in the airplane. I'm, I'm very busy at the beginning of the surgery. I'm very busy at the end. And in the middle, I'm just there to make sure stuff doesn't go wrong. Because when it does, everybody looks at me like, what do we do now? Uh, so a lot like being a pilot. And uh, I'm often referred to as Dr. Sleepy Time or Dr. Feel Good or something like that. And uh, the most common question I get asked by my colleagues in the legislature is, when somebody's been talking too long, they'll usually come up to me on the floor and say, uh, can you do something about this? Don't you have some medicine or something? You could make the talking stop. <laughs> so get that a lot. Get that a lot. So, yeah, so from the perspective of what we're dealing with here with the coronavirus, uh, you know, I think primarily from a mortality standpoint or from a, you know, what can kill you standpoint, what we're mostly concerned about is respiratory failure, where your lungs are just simply unable to provide oxygen to the rest of the body because they're too badly damaged to function. Uh, and that's sort of the domain in which I live. What I've been trained to do, uh, what I do on a daily basis involves putting breathing tubes in people's windpipes to help them breathe under surgery. So sort of naturally, that's kind of where I live. And I would tell you that, uh, you know, this virus is very concerning. Uh, we should take it seriously, even though for younger folks, you know, the, the incidence of uh, a severe reaction or, or getting very sick is, is much less uh, than if you're older or have pre-existing conditions. Um, we do know that there are situations where young people have been severely affected by it. Uh, and have gone into respiratory failure. So even though the mortality rate for the very young is, is very is very small, um, it is there. It is there. And I would point out also just to keep in mind that uh, pre-existing conditions are one of the biggest risk factors for having a really bad outcome. So if you smoke, if you vape, um, if you have history of asthma, uh, if you have diabetes. Uh, those are all things where you should be very much more cautious than the average person. The likelihood that you could get very sick from this virus is a little higher than the general population. Now, initially, when these reports started coming out, you know, obviously this response uh, from just the general populace perspective was kind of slow to come around and realize the severity of uh, coronavirus. What do you think was kind of the tipping point that made people kind of wake up and realize, no, this is something serious that we have to, we have to all get on board and take care of? Well, you know, honestly, I think, um, well, a couple of things. First of all, I think that it didn't help that, uh, other parts of the world, in particular China, uh, sort of minimized the degree to which this was a problem for a very long time. And I remember sort of, sitting in the lunchroom in the doctor's lounge with my colleagues back in November, December, and we were sort of watching the events unfold in China, and we were looking at each other thinking, you know, is this coming here? Yeah, probably. Is it going to be serious? You know, could be, but it's hard to tell because, you know, we can't seem to get very good data out of China as to what's really going on. Um, so I think that was part of the problem is that uh, it, there was a great degree, degree of minimization from parts of the world where this was really happening. I don't think it was really until it hit Italy and we saw how it ravaged the country of Italy um, that I think people in the general population kind of took notice. And as I recall, that was sort of late February 
um, early March and people started seeing the death counts rise in Italy. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, everybody at this point's probably heard the stories of, you know, not having enough ventilators and having to make decisions about who lives and who dies. You know, healthcare workers going home and just crying, uh, you know, because they can't save everybody. Um, I think that was kind of the tipping point. And that was really before we started to see the cases rise here in America, um, for the most part. Now, fortunately, we have a president who, you know, takes public health stuff seriously. Um, and I would say, you know, um, for all of, you know, wh- whatever he says or doesn't say that people may or may not get aggravated with President Trump, I think there's one thing we can all agree, and that is that our president is a little bit of a germaphobe. Uh, and that's the kind of guy you want in office after uh, dealing with a public health crisis. So his decision to aggressively restrict travel at a very early point, I think, was a really smart move. Uh, and I think in retrospect, when we look back on this and we say, you know, what what's sort of the first thing that slowed the spread here in America, I think you're going to look back and say that the travel bans were very wise. Yeah, I mean, as we look at the the U.S. Uh, toll, obviously the number of cases is the most in the country right now. But is that due to an aggressive spread of the disease or the aggressive part of America and getting this testing done early and reporting the numbers? Where is that discrepancy? Yeah, I I think that. Well, I think it's multifactorial, but I, I think clearly um, testing, you, you can't, since, since this disease has such a high asymptomatic rate or sort of mild symptoms rate, in other words, not everybody that gets the disease is going to end up in the ICU on a ventilator. So it can be a little challenging to spot somebody. In fact, I was talking to a colleague uh, less than a week ago, and I was like, well, how many people do we have at our hospital that are under suspicion? He said, well, we have 30 right now. He said, but I think only one or two of them actually potentially has it. Um, everybody else is suffering from the flu or they've got a you know, problem with their lungs that's pre-existing or they got something else going on or they got heart failure or COPD or something like that. So without testing, it's really hard to spot these folks. And also keep in mind, so many of them are just totally asymptomatic. Uh, so when you're talking about number of cases, in a disease like this, I don't know that that necessarily is a reliable number in terms of severity of disease or the consequences to the health system, um, because you do have such a high percentage of people who may test positive, but may never darken the door of an emergency room. You know, they go to drive through testing, they find out they're positive, they go home, they self quarantine, good to go. Um, so, yeah. Well, do you think a better way to quantify that would be to include the number of critical cases that are currently going on? I mean, I I know they include the number of people who have recovered, which, you know, is obviously a positive metric. But in terms of understanding the severity uh, of this in America, would it be better to include not just the number of cases confirmed, not just the number of deaths, but also the number of people who are currently in critical care to kind of create that percentage of severity? Yeah, no, I think that would be very wise. I think it's really important for us to be able to differentiate between the walking well, uh, who may be affected, you know, with mild or little symptoms. 
you know, maybe they had a fever, a mild cough, the worst of it. Uh, and those who are, are prodigiously sick, uh, for a number of reasons, not just because it gives better numbers and gives us a handle on, you know, how serious of a crisis this is, but ultimately we're going to want to go back and look and see, you know, what percentage of people who were infected had serious enough symptoms to be admitted to the hospital and what were some predominant characteristics amongst that particular group so that we can go back and do a better job of identifying people who may be at increased risk of having a bad outcome. Uh, Because if even when we develop a, a consistent uh, treatment and or you know, vaccine or something that prevents the disease, um, those groups you want to prioritize. You know, just like when we uh, talk about pneumonia, uh, we have a vaccine for pneumonia. We don't give that to everybody. You, you probably haven't gotten that. Um, but people who are elderly, people that have a history of respiratory disease, uh, those people get prioritized that kind of uh, a vaccine because if they get the disease, then their uh, course of disease is much more serious and severe than the general population. So yeah, totally, I think we could be doing that. Now, uh, as we look at the response, uh, it's hard to overlook the efforts that are going on at the city, county, state, and federal level. Uh, But I want to keep it focused here on Texas and kind of what's being done. Uh, From your perspective uh, as a medical professional, we'll get into your uh, perspective as a state representative here in a second. But uh, from the medical side of things, uh, what is the opinion of you or your colleagues uh, of how Governor Abbott is leading the Texas response? I think Governor Abbott's done an amazing job. Uh, And, you know, I think one of the things that that struck me early on as I started looking at some of the data on COVID is that it does seem that population density is a risk factor for spread. When you look at what's going on in New York State, and particularly um, Manhattan, New York City, um, you know, you look at the areas in Texas that are profoundly affected. Uh, being in proximity to one another is a, is a risk factor. Uh, and so I think that, you know, one of the things that comes up pretty much on a daily basis is should we have a, you know, lockdown, a shelter-in-place order for the entire state, uh, or should we allow, you know, local jurisdictions to do that based on what they're seeing on the ground? I think governors handled that extremely well, uh, and I'm, I'm fully behind him on that. I, I don't think you know, in areas of Texas where, you know, social distancing means maybe I don't shake hands when I go to the feed store, um, but otherwise it's probably 10 miles between me and the next human being for the, you know, the majority of the day. Um, That doesn't, to me, require the same level of government interference in people's lives as an area where you might have 200 uh, or 1,000 people living in the same, you know, apartment complex, you know, within um, half a mile radius in any direction from each other. Yeah, I, I know that the the rural reps are really having a hard time and trying to push back against uh, some of these claims, as well as, you know, the, the folks in, in rural counties start to get upset about 
uh, you know, the urban centers venturing out in order to go to grocery stores and things like that. But, uh, you know, for that North, that part of Montgomery County that, that you cover, um, you know, they are right there next to one of the major hotspots in Texas. What do you right. think, uh, what do you think are some of the things that, uh, surrounding counties could do, uh, to just better weather this response? Um, you know, are, are there any efforts that could be done or is it just best to maintain what, what the governor is doing and, uh, you know, just address problems as they come at you? Yeah, I mean, I think that has to be a, a jurisdictional, you know, sort of a local issue uh, kind of thing. You know, Montgomery County uh, was one of the last in, in our area to, to issue a shelter-in-place order. And, you know, I was on the phone with the county judge and you know, spent some time with him. And we talked this over, and, you know, at the time, uh, it looked initially like the data for Montgomery County it's going to be significantly different than Harris County. And still, I would say uh, large portions of Montgomery County are pretty mildly, if, if at all, affected uh, by this. Uh, but you always are going to have sort of creep uh, from, you know, folks uh, like myself, for example. I live in Harris County and I work in Montgomery County. So I cross over the county line every day. Um and so it's not unreasonable to think that a lot of people probably do the same thing, especially when you can't find toilet paper and which is still just bizarre to me. I, can't, I just can't pick it up now. Yeah. Can you, uh, can, <laughs> can you give us your uh, medical opinion on the necessity for so much toilet paper in homes right now? <laughs> and just, I just don't, I don't understand my friend. I mean, I just, I'm like, where is it all going and what are you planning on doing with it? Um, it doesn't confer any protective benefits against the Chinese virus that I know of, but, uh, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it's good news if you work at a quilted Northern or a Charmin plant or any of them at this point. Um, yeah. So I want to get over onto the legislative side of things. Uh, you yourself uh, in your two terms alone have been pretty well lauded for your ability to get things done in the Texas legislature. So as you uh, look ahead, you know, uh, leave the campaigns, leave all that stuff out of it. When the, the legislature convenes in January, 2021, what do you think lawmakers are going to be talking about as far as coronavirus in this response is concerned? Yeah, I think, um, Jordan, I think so. A couple of things. Um, number one, I think, and most importantly, I think the big stuff probably we don't know exactly what that is yet. Um, I do think, to a certain extent, on a thing like this, kind of just like when we were dealing with Hurricane Harvey, um, you know, we started to get some idea of maybe what needed to be done uh, during and uh, immediately after. But it wasn't until we kind of had a, a serious look back on, on the response vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, the governor had a task force for Harvey that went back and, and really analyzed the response to Harvey and figured out, okay, now, what, what went well and what didn't go well. Um, and then you saw the response this uh, last legislative session where we came in and we tried to fix a lot of the things that that needed fixing that we weren't, you know, sort of like stuff that we didn't even know at the time we needed. Right. So, um, like for example, 
we didn't have an infrastructure process in response to a disaster like Hurricane Harvey to deal with debris management. Yeah. I mean, who, who thinks about trash and when your home's flooding, right? Um, but it's important when, you know, you have all these homes where, you know, you're basically ripping out all the drywall and pretty much, you know, everything else and you're trying to rebuild it. It is important to have a statewide plan to how you're going to deal with just massive tons of tons and tons of debris. Mm-hmm. So I think the big stuff like that, we, I don't even think we know exactly what those kind of opportunities are going to be yet and what, what kind of things need to be fixed. Uh, I do think that, you know, there, there are some things that I'm starting to see that, uh, I'm, I'm sort of scratching my head and a little concerned about, I don't know, uh, this morning I was tweeting about a situation we have here in Harris County where we have the County judge now saying that she's going to release one in eight inmates, uh, most of whom, as I understand, are all convicted of felonies. Uh, from Harris County Jail because she's concerned about the spread of coronavirus in the jail. Uh, and I, I'm wondering if that's, uh, you know, I personally think that's a terrible idea. Um, where are you going to release these people to? Uh, what about the seven-eighths of people who are still there? Do you really think that releasing one in eight persons is going to somehow make the other seven-eighths less likely to get infected? Unless, of course, you're releasing the infected people. Well, she's not testing them, so we don't really know. Um, yeah, and that seems to run counter. Do you really expect well, those people to go home to shelter in place? I mean, yeah. so you know, this business of utilizing local control and sort of these sweeping disaster powers, uh, this whole section of government code that applies to the county judge, where they essentially just have this authoritarian uh, control over everybody's lives and can essentially do whatever they want to do. Um, I think that chapter may need to be looked at a little more carefully. Yeah, and that seems to run counter to the governor's executive order that he issued on Sunday that was specifically addressing the untimely release of felon uh, of felons from the the prison system. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I'm shocked to see uh, after that coming out that the county judge is continuing forward with that uh, and is just going to completely ignore, you know, the, the top elected official in the state who's supposed to be giving these directives. Uh, but to that end, we're, we're seeing so many uh, regulations be pushed aside and uh, stuff like that to be able to maintain the response, not just in our healthcare facilities, but also at grocery stores, any of these essential businesses. Um, last week, I was talking to Will Douglas, who is uh, the Republican candidate over in HD 113. He's also he also owns a few uh, pharmacies. And so he was talking to me about the Texas Pharmacy Act and how it actually has provisions built into it that in times of emergency uh, maintenance medication, that if they, they run out of refills, that it's up to the discretion of the pharmacist in order to be able to. Uh, refill that prescription without having to contact that care provider uh, to confirm that refill. Uh, I wonder if there is anything that you've seen in terms of the response from Texas that could be converted to that form where we put these emergency preparedness provisions in so that way we don't have to wait for the governor to put these executive orders in place, that we actually have the mechanism within our government code 
uh, or just within, you know, just within the code to be able to set this up down the road. Do you think that that is something that the legislature will look at putting in more of these kick in provisions uh, when these disasters take place? Yeah, no, I, I think that's definitely part of it, Jordan. And I think, you know, even more so um, for all the liberty minded listeners that you likely have, I, I would say that I think one of the things that we could and should and will do uh, as I think, you know, we should, I talked about maybe having a look back, uh, the governor having a task force to look back. I think we should have a task force that looks back at every single regulation and rule that was suspended and whether or not we actually needed these to begin with. Um, because there may be some that if it wasn't necessary during a disaster, um, my guess is, is that there will be a lot of these where they probably weren't necessary, period. Uh, and not only should we not have them during a time of disaster, but we should just go back to the code and, and just repeal these entirely. Some of these restrictions and things like that, you know. Um, is, is there any harm to, if you can have beer to go, is there any harm to having margaritas to go? I mean, what's the deal there? Yeah. Um, and that's the one that I really look at, like uh, specifically on the restaurant stuff. Like, I don't I don't think they're going to completely waive, uh, you know, the the healthcare licenses or driver's license or titles or anything right. like that. But, uh, you know, it does beg the question, if we had this stuff set up ahead of time, would businesses be feeling the crunch that they are right now waiting for, you know, the alcohol uh, provisions to, to be suspended. Uh, you know, if more businesses had the ability to do this already, would they be as affected? Um, you know, yeah. I, I gotta think that if you're a business owner at this point, uh, you know, part of your business plan begins to add this section. What do you do if everything shuts down? You know, how do we continue? No, I, yeah. Uh, I, I think that's a big one. And, and actually, let me throw one other thing in there, Jordan, because I think this is really, really important. Uh, I deal with a lot of insurance issues. And uh, there are insurance policies um, that are it's basically an insurance policy that is for a business owner that it, essentially it, it's like AFLAC, right? So it's there when you need it kind of thing. Yeah, uh, But it's basically there whenever your business experiences some sort of economic disruption and you're not able to make payroll or, or have income. It basically steps in and provides that income to your business. And they call it business interruption insurance. Uh, and many, many, many companies have it. Um, but interestingly enough, in almost every policy I have looked at, uh, a... Um, pandemic or some sort of, you know, disease that spreads that causes business interruption is an excluded condition under these policies. So one of the things that I will be doing uh, as a insurance legislator when I get back is to see what steps could and should be taken uh, to try to encourage the private market vis-a-vis the insurance industry to offer that as a covered condition, you know, kind of like we have flood insurance, right? So if you live in a part of Texas where you could flood, you probably should have flood insurance. Um, maybe this is something that businesses that, you know, like a restaurant would want to have a policy that in the event that there was some sort of a, uh, you know, viral disaster that caused them to have to shut down for two months, that that policy would step in. Just imagine the difference for what would happen if there were insurance policies out there in for where people were actually 
you know, able to collect on these insurance policies, just like you would if you uh, got in a car accident or if your house burned down or if it flooded or whatever, and things like that. So, you know, the private sector, to a certain extent, I think uh, could step in this arena. Uh, and instead of having to pass $2 trillion, you know, spending bills every time something like this happens, why not let the private sector come in and provide a remedy for these small businesses so that if, if something like this happens again, um, that they'll be protected without us having to, you know, borrow money from China. Yeah. This seems like one of those watershed moments where obviously nothing is going to be quite the same as it used to be. Uh, from your perspective as a healthcare professional and what you've seen over the last 20 or so years, uh, do you think that we need to be better prepared for more events like this in the future? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that, uh, I think that's unquestioned. Uh, just like, you know, I think, and maybe it's because we've had more hurricanes uh, than we've had pandemics, but, you know, I think that we have a bad storm, we have a hurricane, and we think about what do we need to do to prevent this from being you know, having the same kind of problem again, I think, yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that's sort of troubling to me that I've spent some time thinking about is from a prevention standpoint, uh, it's still not really clear to me where this came from and why. I, I'm not, um, you know, of course, and, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist and I'm, I'm not here to feed the rumor mill, but the origin of this virus to me is not clear. Uh, and it doesn't help that it, we keep getting these mixed messages from the Chinese as to, you know, how this started and stuff like that. But when you try to answer a question like, is this going to happen again? Um, this is a totally novel, you know, it's a, this is what they call a novel virus, right? So what that means is that even though it's in the same family of viruses as the common cold and flu, um, it is something of a variety <clears throat> that no one's immune system on Earth has ever been challenged by before, unlike the flu. Well, it didn't just sort of, you know, um, you know, randomly materialize. I mean, it was a process by which that was created. And I don't know if that was a process that involved, that, you know, if that was uh, just sort of a natural thing or if that was a band-aid thing or what. I don't think any of us know um, right now. And so, it's hard to predict how likely is this to happen again when we don't fully understand what created it in the first place. So, I mean, we can say generally speaking, yes, we think this could happen again and we better be prepared. But as far as how likely, I mean, it's likely that we're all going to experience the Gulf Coast hurricane again, probably in the next 10 to 15 years, right? Yeah. Historically, that's typically what happens, right? And we, we understand the process by which those things are created and the currents and the temperature of the Gulf. And you can kind of see them coming as the winds, you know, come off the, the, the uh, coast of Africa. Um, but this is like, this kind of hit us all out of left field. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the fact that this was, uh, uh, this virus isn't like the other coronavirus strains that we've seen. Um, because as I started to look into this, you know, I saw that the, the animal, uh, veterinary 
industry has dealt with coronavirus for at least since the 70s uh, that they've known about mm-hmm. it. Uh, and, and so, yes, that that question is one that I mean, I hope we get answered. Uh, certainly, I think people would like to know where and how this came about. But if it starts, it also starts to become a situation where regionally these types of viruses start to tick up more. I, I mean, I got to think that there's got there's going to be a bigger response to this type of thing. Uh, Dr. Oliverson, yeah. I appreciate you taking uh, so much time with us today and really opening our eyes to this. Uh, as we wrap up, I wanted you to give the opportunity either as a state rep, as a, uh, a physician, or as a uh, just a Texan, what is your message to your fellow neighbors as we look to spend in another month under these response conditions? Yeah, I think my main message to everybody out there, number one is hang in there. Um, and number two is don't let your guard down too soon. Uh, we're not out of the woods yet on this. Um, and right now, we don't have a we don't have an effective treatment. We don't have an effective uh, cure, or, or we don't have an effective prevention agent other than what we're already doing, which is you know, sort of universal precautions, social distancing, all those cool you know buzzwords that you've heard, PPE, all those fun terms that have been added to our cultural lexicon. You know, <laughs> people like me have heard of those for years, but the average. You know, America now is now like, oh yeah, I know PPE. Is. Um, <laughs> that is what <laughs> that is what is yeah, that is our only defense at this point against that virus. If you think you might be uh, sick or suffering from it, or if you know you've been exposed, uh, take that seriously. Get tested. Uh, it's you know, protect your neighbors, protect your family members, protect the people that you don't even know that you might come in contact with. Uh, stay home. Uh, isolate, uh, quarantine, uh, take it seriously. And that is really the only way we're going to, we're going to get this thing behind us at this point. Excellent. Well, Dr. I appreciate, yeah, no, I appreciate being able to come on and spend time with you. Yeah, we appreciate it too. And, uh, thank you so much. Uh, and thank you for, uh, continuing your efforts on the healthcare side. Uh, you know, you guys, the grocery workers, first responders, everyone who is out there as essential workers, uh, we just, we really appreciate all the efforts. I hope you're getting some rest and you're getting some time with family, uh, and that, you know, you just, you get through this unscathed and we can bring you back as we get closer, uh, to the legislature convening and we can talk about some of the policy stuff that you're going to be pursuing at that point absolutely yeah appreciate it jordan y'all take care out there all right thank you to dr oliverson for joining us dr state rep uh, I never know how to do those things, but I do appreciate him taking time. Uh, he is going to be going back out uh, to the hospital and, and putting in another rotation tonight. So uh, I hope he's getting uh, tons of rest. He's getting some time with his family. Uh, and uh, same goes for anyone who's in the healthcare industry right now. Uh, this this is definitely a grind. 
and so we appreciate you, all the things that you folks are doing. Uh, normally at this point of the show is when we give some more websites and stuff. So it's a great time to remind you if you have any questions about coronavirus and the Texas response. Uh, first thing you're going to want to do is go to the Department of State Health Services website. Just Google Texas Department of State Health Services, DSHS. They are uh, the first point you want to go to for anything related to understanding what this virus is, what uh, the social distancing guidelines mean, uh, what is the guidelines for local health care departments uh, or for county health departments, uh, what is that response. If you want to know about uh, some of the policies, the executive orders and things like that, that have been passed by the governor or have been issued by the governor, you can go to gov.texas.gov. All right. Again, this is the governor's official website. Uh, it's gov.texas.gov. Hit the news releases, press releases, wherever that section is, and you will see every one of the announcements, the executive orders, all that stuff. Uh, if you want to look specifically at just the executive orders, the Legislative Reference Library, uh, the Texas Legislative Reference Library is where you want to go to look up all of that stuff. Uh, it's also where you can go to uh, look up other information about the state's code. Uh as always, make sure you're checking with your county or city websites. Most uh, folks have caught up. They have coronavirus pages specifically for what is happening at the local level. Um, there is tons of information out there, right? Uh, but make sure you're getting it from a trusted source. Uh, we're still seeing that there are, are fraud claims out there. I see it on Twitter occasionally, people tagging these uh, coronavirus care kits. Don't believe it. FDA has not. Uh, approved any home testing. Uh, there are no official home t testing kits that are available on the market. So if you see that stuff, it's a fraud. You can report it to the FDA or you can just uh, ignore that BS and uh, move on down the road. Those kind of vultures during this time, uh, they disgust me. I I'm just going to say they flat out disgust me. So uh, Please do your part to avoid those things. Help older folks who are trying to uh, figure out their response. Uh, let them know to not get caught up by these scams. Uh, but also, to that end, the Republican Party of Texas has re-kicked its RPT Serves initiative. And if you haven't found out uh, anything about this, make sure you check out the Republican Party of Texas website. Uh, make sure you check out the Texas Young Republicans on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Texas YRs. Uh, again, if you want to get into uh, to the RPT Serves initiative, this is just uh, Republicans who are taking their political energy and putting it toward public service. So if you go to texasgop.org, you can find out more about how to get involved with that process. Uh, whether it's donating blood, it is uh, donating supplies, delivering meals to seniors, whatever you are doing in your community to get active and help with this response, RPT serves is a great way to find avenues to get active, right? Uh, Republicans are, are the, the party of action. We don't want to just talk about what we're doing. We want to take action and bring results and solutions to the people. So if you haven't checked that out, texasgop.org for information on how you can get involved, how you can serve in your local community. That's all I got. 
we're going to keep these things going. I'm still trying to get uh, more folks booked. Uh, uh, looks like we are going to have Ronnie Jackson, the president's former physician who is running for Congress here in Texas, way out in the panhandle sticks. Uh, we are scheduled to have him on next week, so look forward to that interview. If you are a candidate in a runoff and you'd like to uh, talk to us about how you're managing this response, uh, about why you got into your race, uh, or just uh, what you think about all this coronavirus stuff, hit us up, Twitter and Instagram, at Big Texas Podcast. As always, make sure you're following Texas Young Republicans on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at TexasYRs. You can go to our website, TexasYR.gop, and... Make sure you're just treating each other well. Be kind, right? We're the friendship state. Our motto is friendship, right? So let's just be kind to one another, social distance. Uh, don't buy all the toilet paper. Be responsible in your toilet paper consumption, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and thank you for listening. Subscribe, hit the follow, whatever you're doing, iTunes, Spotify. We appreciate everyone who's doing their part listening, helping us keep this train rolling. Till next time, friends. We'll see you down the road.